Notre Dame de Paris by Victor Hugo, Book Eight, Chapter Four. La Chate Ogni Speranza, Abandon All Hope. In the Middle Ages, when a building was finished, there was almost as much of it below as above ground. Unless built upon piles, like Notre Dame, a palace, a fortress, a church had always a double foundation. In the case of cathedrals, it was almost like another and subterranean cathedral, low, dark, mysterious, blind and mute, beneath the upper nave, which blazed with light and echoed with the sound of organ and bells day and night. Sometimes it was a sepulchre. In palaces and fortresses it was a prison. Sometimes, too, a tomb. Sometimes a combination of both. These mighty structures, whose mode of formation and slow growth we have explained elsewhere, had not merely foundations, but as it were, roots, which extended under the earth, branching out into rooms, galleries, staircases, in imitation of the building above. Thus churches, palaces, and fortresses were buried midway in the earth. The cellars of an edifice formed another edifice, into which one descended instead of ascending, and whose subterranean stories were evolved below the pile of upper stories of the monument, like those forests and mountains seen reversed in the mirroring water of a lake beneath the forests and mountains on its shore. In the Bastille Saint-Antoine, the Palace of Justice at Paris, and the Louvre, these underground structures were prisons. The various stories of these prisons, as they sank deeper into the ground, became darker and more contracted. They formed so many zones, presenting various degrees of horror. Dante could have found no better image of his hell. These tunnel-like dungeons usually ended in a deep hole like a tub, such as Dante chose for the abode of Satan, and where society placed those condemned to death. When once any poor wretch was buried there, he bade farewell to light, air, life, all hope. He never left it save for the gallows or the stake. Sometimes he lay there and rotted. Human justice styled this forgetting. Between mankind and himself, the prisoner felt that a mountain of stones and jailers weighed him down, and the entire prison, the massive fortress, became but a huge complicated lock which shut him off from the living world. It was in a dungeon hole of this kind, in one of the oubliettes dug by Saint-Louis, the in pace of the Tournelle, that Esmeralda was placed when condemned to the gallows, doubtless lest she should try to escape with the colossal palace of justice above her head. Poor fly, which could not have stirred the smallest one of the unhewn stones. Certainly, providence and mankind were equally unjust. Such a lavish display of misery and torment was needless to crush so frail a creature. There she lay, lost in the darkness, buried, entombed, immured. Whoever had seen her in that state, after having seen her laugh and dance in the sunshine, must have shivered. Cold as night, cold as death, not a breath of air to flutter her hair, 
not a human sound in her ear, not a ray of daylight in her eyes, bent double, crushed beneath her chains, crouching beside a jug and a loaf of bread, upon a little straw, in the pool of water formed beneath her by the damp oozing of her cell, motionless, nearly breathless, she was almost beyond all sense of suffering. Phoebus, the sun, high noon, the fresh air, the streets of Paris, her dancing always hailed with applause, the sweet prattle of love with the officer. Then the priest, the old hag, the dagger, the blood, the torture, and the gallows. All these things had hovered before her, now like a gay and golden vision, now like a monstrous nightmare. But they were now naught but a vague and horrible struggle lost in the darkness, or like distant music played above on the earth and no longer heard in the depths to which the wretched girl had fallen. Since she had been there, she had neither waked nor slept. In her misery, in her dungeon, she could no more distinguish waking from sleeping, a dream from reality, than she could day from night. All was mingled, broken, vague, floating confusedly before her mind. She felt nothing, knew nothing, thought nothing. At best, she only dreamed. Never did living creature pierce so far into the realm of nothingness. Thus benumbed, frozen, petrified, she had scarcely noted the sound of a trap-door which was twice or thrice opened somewhere above her, without even admitting a ray of light, and through which a hand had thrown a crust of black bread. And yet this was her only remaining means of communication with men, the periodical visit of the jailer. One thing only still mechanically caught her ear. Over her head the dampness filtered through the moldy stones of the roof, and at regular intervals a drop of water fell. She listened stupidly to the noise made by this drop of water as it dripped into the pool beside her. This drop of water falling into the pool was the only movement still stirring around her, the only clock which marked the time, the only sound of all the noises made upon the surface of the earth which reached her. To be exact, she did also feel from time to time, in this sink of mire and gloom, something cold crawling hither and thither over her foot or her arm, and she shuddered. How long had she been there? She did not know. She remembered a death sentence pronounced somewhere, against someone. Then she was borne away, and she waked icy cold in the midst of night and silence. She had dragged herself about on her hands and knees. Then iron rings had cut her ankle, and chains had clanked. She discovered that there was a wall all about her, that there was a tiled floor under her, covered with water, and a bundle of straw, but neither lamp nor ventilator. Then she seated herself upon the straw, and occasionally, for a change of position, on the last step of some stone stairs in her cell. At one time she tried to count the dark moments measured for her by the drop of water. But soon this sad task of a diseased brain ceased of its own accord, 
and left her in a stupor. At last, one day, or one night, for midnight and noon wore the same hue in this tomb, she heard above her a noise louder than that usually made by the turnkey when he brought her bread and water. She raised her head and saw a reddish ray coming through the cracks in the sort of trap-door made in the room of the in pace. At the same time the heavy iron creaked, the trap-door grated on its rusty hinges, turned, and she saw a lantern, a hand, and the lower part of the bodies of two men, the door being too low for her to see their heads. The light hurt her so cruelly that she shut her eyes. When she reopened them, the door was again closed, the lantern was placed on a step of the staircase, a man alone stood before her. A black gown fell to his feet. A cowl of the same color hid his face. Nothing of his person was visible, neither his face nor his hands. He looked like a long black winding sheet, standing bolt upright, under which something seemed to move. She gazed fixedly for some moments at this specter. Still, neither she nor he spoke. They seemed two statues confronting each other. Two things only seemed to live in the cave, the wick of the lantern, which crackled from the dampness of the atmosphere, and the drop of water from the ceiling, which interrupted this irregular crackle with its monotonous plash and made the light of the lantern quiver in concentric rings upon the oily water of the pool. At last the prisoner broke the silence. Who are you? A priest. The word, the accent, the sound of his voice made her tremble. The priest added in a hollow tone, Are you prepared? For what? To die. Oh, said she, will it be soon? Tomorrow. Her head, which she had lifted with joy, again sank upon her breast. That is a very long time yet, she murmured. Why did they not make it today? Then you are very unhappy, asked the priest, after a pause. I am very cold, replied she. She took her feet in her hands, a common gesture with those wretched people who suffer from cold, and which we have already observed in the recluse of the Tour Roland, and her teeth chattered. The priest seemed to cast his eyes about the cell from beneath his hood. No light, no fire, in the water? It is horrible. Yes, she answered with the look of surprise which misfortune had imprinted on her face. Daylight is for everyone. Why is it that they give me nothing but night? Do you know, resumed the priest, after a fresh pause, why you are here? I think I did know once, said she, passing her thin fingers over her brow, as if to help her memory. But I don't know now. All at once she began to cry, like a little child. "'I want to get out, sir. I am cold. I am frightened, and there are creatures which crawl all over me.' "'Well, follow me.' So saying, the priest took her by the arm. 
the unfortunate creature was frozen to the marrow, but still that hand gave her a sensation of cold. Oh, she murmured, it is the icy hand of death. Who are you? The priest threw back his hood. She looked. It was that evil face which had so long haunted her, that demon head which had appeared to her at the house of La Falardelle, above the adored head of her Phoebus, that eye which she had last seen sparkle beside a dagger. This apparition, always so fatal to her, and which had thus urged her on from misfortune to misfortune, and even to torture, roused her from her torpor. The veil which had clouded her memory seemed rent in twain. Every detail of her mournful adventure, from the night scene at the house of La Falardelle down to her condemnation at the Tournelle, rushed upon her mind at once, not vague and confused as heretofore, but clear, distinct, vivid, living, terrible. The somber figure before her recalled those half-effaced memories almost blotted out by excess of suffering, as the heat of the fire brings back in all their freshness invisible letters traced on white paper with sympathetic ink. She felt as if every wound in her heart were torn open and bled together. "'Ha!' she cried, pressing her hands to her eyes with a convulsive shudder. "'It is the priest!' Then her arms fell listlessly at her side, and she sat with downcast head and eyes, mute and trembling. The priest gazed at her with the eye of a kite, which has long hovered high in the heavens above a poor meadow-lark crouching in the wheat, gradually and silently descending in ever-lessening circles, and, suddenly swooping upon his prey like a flash of lightning, grasps it panting in his clutch. She murmured feebly, Do your work, do your work, strike the last blow, and her head sank between her shoulders in terror, like that of a lamb awaiting the butcher's axe. You look upon me with horror, then, he asked at length. She made no answer. Do you look on me with horror, he repeated. Her lips moved as if she smiled. Yes, said she. The executioner jests with the prisoner. For months he has pursued me, threatened me, terrified me. But for him, my God, how happy I should have been. It is he who hurled me into this gulf of woe. Oh, heavens, it is he who killed. It is he who killed him. My Phoebus! Here, bursting into sobs and raising her eyes to the priest, she cried, O oh, wretch, who are you? What have I done to you? Do you hate me so much? Alas, what have you against me? I love you, exclaimed the priest. Her tears ceased suddenly. She stared vacantly at him. He had fallen upon his knees and devoured her face with eyes of flame. "'Do you hear? I love you!' he again exclaimed. "'What love!' said the miserable girl, shuddering. 
the love of a damned man. Both were silent for some moments, oppressed by the intensity of their emotions. He mad, she stunned. Listen, said the priest at last, and a strange calm seemed to have taken possession of him. You shall know all. I will tell you that which as yet I have hardly ventured to confess to myself. When I secretly question my own soul in those dead hours of the night, when the darkness is so profound that it seems as if even God could no longer see us. Listen, before I met you, girl, I was happy. And I, she faintly sighed, do not interrupt me. Yes, I was happy. At least I thought so. I was pure. My soul was filled with limpid light. No head was held higher or happier than mine. Priests consulted me on chastity. Doctors on doctrines. Yes, science was all in all to me. It was a sister, and a sister was all I asked. Not but that, as I grew older, other ideas came to me. More than once my flesh thrilled as a woman's form passed by. That force of sex and passion, which, although in the pride of youth I had imagined I had stifled forever, more than once has rebelled against the chain of the iron vows which bind me, wretch that I am, to the cold stones of the altar. But fasting, prayer, study, and monastic mortifications again made my spirit ruler of my body. And then I shunned women. I had only to open a book, and all the impure vapors of my brain were banished by the glorious sunbeams of science. In a few moments I felt the gross things of earth fly far away, and I was once more calm and serene bathed in the tranquil light of eternal truth. So long as the demon sent only vague shadows to attack me, passing singly before me, in church, in the streets, or in the fields, and scarcely recurring in my dreams, I conquered him easily. Alas, if the victory be not still mine, God is to blame, who failed to make man and the devil of equal strength. Listen. One day, here the priest paused, and the prisoner heard him utter agonizing sighs. He continued, One day I was leaning from the window of my cell. What book was I reading? Oh, all that is confused and vague to me now. I had been reading. The window looked upon a public square. I heard the sound of tambourine and music. Vexed at being thus disturbed in my reverie, I looked out. What I saw was seen by many others as well, and yet it was not a spectacle for mere mortal eyes. There, in the middle of the pavement, it was noon, the sun shone brightly, a creature was dancing. A creature so beautiful that God would have preferred her to the Virgin, and chosen her to be his mother and would have wished to be born of her, had she existed when he was made man. Her eyes were black 
and lustrous. Amidst her black hair, certain locks shone in the sun like threads of gold. Her feet moved so swiftly that they faded from sight like the spokes of a wheel revolving rapidly. About her head, in her black braids, there were metallic plates which glittered in the sun and made a crown of stars above her brow. Her gown, sprinkled with spangles, scintillated, blue, and sewn with a thousand sparks like a summer night. Her pliant brown arms waved and twined about her waist like two scarves. Her figure was of surpassing beauty. Oh, how resplendent was that form, which stood out like something luminous, even in the very light of the sun itself. Alas, girl, it was you. Surprised, intoxicated, charmed, I suffered myself to gaze. I gazed so long that all at once I shuddered with terror. I felt that fate had overtaken me. The priest, oppressed, again paused a moment. Then he resumed. Already half fascinated, I tried to lay hold of something and to stay myself from falling. I recalled the traps which Satan had already laid for me. The creature before me possessed that superhuman beauty which could only proceed from heaven or from hell. That was no mere girl made of common clay and dimly illumined within by the flickering rays of a woman's soul. It was an angel, but of darkness, of flame, and not of light. Just as I was thinking thus, I saw close beside you a goat, a devilish beast, which looked at me and laughed. The midday sun made its horns seem tipped with fire. Then I recognized the snare of the demon, and no longer doubted that you came from hell, and that you came for my perdition. I believed it. Here the priest looked in the prisoner's face, and added coldly, I believe so still. However, the charm worked, little by little. Your dance went round and round in my brain. I felt the mysterious spell acting within me. All which should have waked slumbered in my soul, and, like men perishing in the snow, I found pleasure in the approach of this slumber. All at once you began to sing. What could I do, miserable man? Your singing was even more enchanting than your dancing. I strove to escape. Impossible. I was nailed. I was rooted to the spot. It seemed as if the marble of the floor had risen to my knees. I was forced to stay to the end. My feet were ice. My head burned. At last, perhaps you pitied me. You ceased to sing. You disappeared. The reflection of the dazzling vision, the echo of the enchanting music, gradually faded from my eyes and ears. Then I sank into the corner of the window, stiffer and more helpless than a fallen statue. The vesper bell aroused me. I rose to my feet. I fled. But alas, 
something within me had fallen which could never be raised up. Something had overtaken me which I could not escape. He paused once more and then went on. Yes, from that day forth there was another man within me whom I did not know. I strove to apply all my remedies, the cloister, the altar, work, books, follies, all. Oh, how empty science seems when we beat against it in despair, a head filled with frantic passion. Girl, do you know what I always saw between my book and me? You, your shadow, the image of the bright vision which had once passed before me. But that image was no longer of the same color. It was gloomy, funereal, somber as the black circle which long haunts the sight of the imprudent man who looks steadily at the sun. Unable to rid myself of it, forever hearing your song ring in my ears, forever seeing your feet dance over my breviary, forever feeling at night, in dreams, your form against mine. I longed to see you once more, to touch you, to know who you were, to see if you were indeed like the ideal image which I had formed of you, to destroy perhaps my dream by confronting it with the reality. In any case, I hoped that a fresh impression might dispel the first, and the first had become unendurable. I sought you out. I saw you again. Misery. Having seen you twice, I longed to see you a thousand times. I longed to see you forever. Then, how may a man stop short upon that steep descent to hell? Then, I ceased to be my own master. The other end of the cord which the demon had fastened to my wings was tied to his own foot. I became a wanderer and a vagrant like you. I waited for you beneath porches. I lurked at street corners. I watched you from the top of my tower. Every night I found myself more charmed, more desperate, more bewitched, nearer perdition. I had learned who you were a gypsy. How could I doubt your magic powers? I hoped that a criminal suit would set me free from your spell. A sorceress once enchanted Bruno Dast. He had her burned alive and was cured. I knew it. I decided to try this remedy. I at first attempted to have you forbidden all access to the square in front of Notre Dame, hoping that I might forget you if you no longer came thither. You paid no heed to the prohibition. You returned. Then I thought of carrying you off. One night I tried to do so. There were two of us. We already had you in our grasp when that miserable officer appeared. He rescued you. He thus began your misfortune, mine, and his own. Finally, not knowing what to do or what would become of me, I denounced you to the judges. I thought that I should be cured, like Bruno Dust. I also vaguely thought that a criminal trial would make you mine, that in a prison I should have you, 
should be able to hold you mine, that there you could not escape me, that you had possessed me so long that I might well possess you in my turn. When a man does wrong, he should do all the wrong he can. It is madness to stop halfway in crime. The extremity of guilt has its raptures of joy. A priest and a witch can mingle in delight upon the scanty straw of a cell. Accordingly, I denounced you. It was then that I terrified you when we met. The plot which I was contriving against you, the storm which I was about to bring upon your head, burst from me in threats and in lightning flashes. And yet I still hesitated. My scheme had terrible sides which made me shrink. Perhaps I might have given it up. Perhaps my odious thought might have withered in my brain without bearing fruit. I thought that it would always be in my power to continue or to stay the prosecution. But every evil thought is inexorable and insists upon becoming a deed. Where I supposed myself all-powerful, fate was mightier than I. Alas! Alas! It is she which captured you and delivered you over to the terrible wheels of the machine which I secretly constructed. Listen, I am near the end. One day, again, the sun shone bright and warm. I saw a man pass who pronounced your name and laughed, and whose eyes were full of passion. Damnation! I followed him. You know the rest. He ceased. The young girl could only utter the words, Oh, my Phoebus! Not that name, said the priest, seizing her angrily by the arm. Do not utter that name. Oh, unhappy wretches that we are! It was that name which ruined us or rather we have ruined each other by the inexplicable caprice of fate. You suffer, do you not? You are cold, the darkness blinds you, the dungeon wraps you round. But perhaps you have still some ray of light in your innermost soul, were it but your childish love for that empty man who played with your heart, while I have a dungeon within me. Within me all is winter, ice, despair. My soul is full of darkness. Do you know all that I have suffered? I was present at your trial. I sat upon the bench with the judges. Yes, beneath one of those priests' cowls were the contortions of the damned. When you were brought in, I was there. When you were cross-questioned, I was there, the den of wolves. It was my crime. It was my gibbet which I saw slowly rise above your head. At each witness, each proof, each plea, I was there. I counted your every step on the road of agony. I was there again when that savage beast—oh, I did not foresee the torture. Listen. I followed you to the torture chamber. I saw you stripped, 
and handled half-naked by the infamous hands of the executioner. I saw your foot, that foot upon which I would have given an empire to press a single kiss and die, that foot by which I would with rapture have been crushed. I saw it enclosed in the horrid buskin which converts the limbs of a living creature into bleeding pulp. Oh, wretched me! As I saw these things, I grasped beneath my sackcloth a dagger with which I slashed my breast. At the shriek which you uttered, I plunged it deep into my flesh. Had you shrieked again, it would have pierced my heart. Look, I think it still bleeds. He opened his cassock. His breast was indeed torn as if by a tiger's claw, and upon his side was a large open wound. The prisoner shrank from him in horror. Oh, said the priest, have pity on me, girl. You think yourself unhappy. Alas, alas, you do not know the meaning of misery. Oh, to love a woman, to be a priest, to be abhorred, to love her with all the strength of your soul, to feel that you would give your blood, your life, your reputation, your salvation, immortality, and eternity, this life and the next, for the least of her smiles, to regret that you are not a king, a genius, an emperor, an archangel, a god, to place at her feet a grander slave, to clasp her in your arms night and day, in your dreams and in your thoughts, and then to see her enamored of a soldier's uniform, and to have nothing to offer her but a priest's dirty gown which would terrify and disgust her, to be present with your jealousy and your rage while she lavishes upon a miserable, idiotic braggart the treasures of her love and beauty, to see that body whose form inflames you, that bosom which has so much sweetness, that flesh tremble and blush under the kisses of another. O oh, heaven, to love her foot, her arm, her shoulder, to think of her blue veins, of her brown skin, until one has writhed whole nights on the floor of one's cell, and to see all the caresses which you have dreamed of bestowing upon her end on the rack, to have succeeded only in stretching her upon the leather bed. Oh, these are indeed tongs heated red-hot in the fires of hell. Oh, happy is he who is sawn asunder between two planks, or torn in quarters by four horses. Do you know what agony he feels through long nights whose arteries boil, whose heart seems bursting, whose head seems splitting, whose teeth tear his hands, remorseless tormentors which turn him incessantly, as on a fiery gridiron, over a thought of love, jealousy, and despair. Mercy, girl, one moment's truce. Cast a handful of ashes upon the coals. Wipe away, 
I conjure you, the big drops of sweat that trickle from my brow. Child, torture me with one hand, but caress me with the other. Have pity, maiden, have pity upon me. The priest wallowed in the water which lay on the floor and beat his head against the edge of the stone stairs. The girl listened to him, looked at him. When he ceased speaking, panting and exhausted, she repeated in a low tone, Oh, my Phoebus. The priest dragged himself towards her on his knees. I entreat you, he cried. If you have any feeling, do not repulse me. Oh, I love you. I am a miserable wretch. When you utter that name, unhappy girl, it is as if you ground the very fibers of my heart between your teeth. Have mercy. If you come from hell, I will go there with you. I have done everything to that end. The hell where you are will be paradise to me. The sight of you is more blissful than that of God. Oh, speak. Will you not accept me? I should have thought that on the day when a woman could repel such love, the very mountains themselves would move. Oh, if you would but consent. Oh, how happy we might be. We would fly. I would help you to escape. We would go somewhere. We would seek out that spot of earth where there was most sunshine, most trees, most blue sky. We would love each other. We would pour our two souls, one into the other, and we would thirst inextinguishably each for the other, quenching our thirst forever and together at the inexhaustible cup of love." She interrupted him with a loud burst of terrible laughter. Only look, father, there is blood upon your nails. The priest for some moments stood petrified, his eyes fixed on his hands. Ah, yes, he replied at length, with strange gentleness. Insult me, mock me, overwhelm me. But come, come, we must hasten. Tomorrow is the day, I tell you. The gallows in the Place de Greve, you know. It is ever ready. It is horrible to see you born in that tumbrel. Oh, have mercy. I never felt before how much I loved you. Oh, follow me. You shall take your time to love me after I have saved you. You shall hate me, too as long as you will, but come, tomorrow, tomorrow, the gallows, your execution. Oh, save yourself, spare me. He seized her by the arm. He was frantic. He strove to drag her away. She fixed her eyes steadily upon him. What has become of my Phoebus? Ah, said the priest, releasing her arm. You are pitiless. What has become of Phoebus? She repeated coldly. He is dead, cried the priest. Dead, said she, still motionless and icy. 
then why do you talk to me of living? He did not listen to her. Oh, yes, said he, as if speaking to himself. He must indeed be dead. The blade entered very deeply. I think I touched his heart with the point. Oh, my very life hung upon that dagger. The young girl threw herself upon him like an angry tigress and pushed him towards the stairs with supernatural strength. Begone, monster! Begone, assassin! Leave me to die! May the blood of both of us forever stain your brow! Be yours, priest? Never, never! Nothing shall ever unite us, not even hell! Go, accursed man! Never! The priest had stumbled to the stairs. He silently freed his feet from the folds of his cassock, took up his lantern, and slowly ascended the steps leading to the door. He reopened the door and went out. All at once the young girl saw his head reappear. His face wore a frightful expression, and he cried to her with a gasp of rage and despair, I tell you, he is dead. She fell face downwards on the ground, and no sound was heard in the dungeon save the sighing of the drop of water which rippled the water in the darkness. Chapter 5 The Mother I do not think that there is anything in the world more delightful than the ideas aroused in a mother's heart by the sight of her child's little shoe especially if it be a best shoe, a Sunday shoe, a christening shoe, a shoe embroidered down to the very soul, a shoe in which the child has never yet taken a step. That shoe is so dainty, so tiny, it is so impossible for it to walk, that it is to the mother as if she saw her child itself. She smiles at it, kisses it, talks to it, she asks it if there can really be so small a foot, and if the child be absent, the pretty shoe is quite enough to bring the sweet and fragile creature before her eyes. She fancies she sees it. She does see it, from head to foot full of life and laughter, with its delicate hands, its round head, its pure lips, its clear eyes, whose very white is blue. If it be winter, it is there. It crawls over the carpet. It laboriously climbs upon a stool, and the mother trembles lest it go too near the fire. If it be summer, it creeps about the courtyard or the garden, pulls up the grass which grows between the paving stones, gazes innocently and fearlessly at the big dogs and horses, plays with shells and flowers, and makes the gardener scold when he finds sand on his borders and dirt in his paths. All is bright and gay. All is mirth around it, like itself, even to the breeze and the sunbeam, which vie with each other in sporting among the light curls of its hair. The shoe shows the mother all this, and makes her heart melt within her like wax before the fire. But if she has lost her child, these thousand images of bliss, delight, and love, 
which hover around the little shoe, become so many horrid visions. The pretty embroidered shoe ceases to be aught but an instrument of torture, forever rending the mother's heart. The same fiber still vibrates, the deepest and most sensitive fiber, but instead of being caressed by an angel, it is wrenched by a demon. One morning, as the May sun was rising in a deep blue sky, such as Garofalo loved to use for the background of his descents from the cross, the recluse of the Tor Roland heard the noise of wheels, horses' hoofs, and the clink of iron in the Place de Greve. She paid but little heed to it, pulled her hair over her ears to drown it, and again fell to gazing, on her knees, at the inanimate object which he had thus adored for fifteen years. This little shoe, as we have already said, was the entire universe to her. Her every thought was bound up in it, never to be parted until death. The gloomy cavern of the Toro Land alone knew how many bitter curses, how many touching lamentations, prayers, and sobs she had addressed to heaven on behalf of that dainty pink satin toy. Never was greater despair lavished on a prettier, more graceful object. On this particular morning it seemed as if her grief burst forth with even greater violence than usual, and those who passed by outside heard her wailing in a loud, monotonous tone which pierced their very hearts. "'Oh, my daughter!' she moaned. My daughter, my poor, dear little child, I shall never see you again, then. It is all over. It always seems to me as if it were but yesterday that it happened. My God, my God, it would have been better never to give her to me, if you meant to snatch her from me so soon. Perhaps you did not know that our children are a part of ourselves— and that a mother who loses her child can no longer believe in God. Ah, wretch that I was to go out that day! Lord, Lord, to take her from me thus! You could never have seen me with her when I warmed her, all rapture at my fire, when she laughed at my breast, when I helped her little feet to climb up my bosom to my lips. Oh, if you had seen all this, my God, you would have had pity on my joy. You would not have robbed me of the only love left in my heart. Was I then so miserable a creature, Lord, that you could not look upon me before you condemned me? Alas, alas, here is the shoe, but where is the foot? Where is the rest? Where is the child? My daughter, my daughter, what have they done with you? Lord, restore her to me. My knees have been bruised for fifteen years in praying to you, my God. Will not that suffice? Restore her to me for a day, an hour, a single instant. One instant only, Lord, and then cast me to the devil for all eternity. Oh, if I did but know where to find the skirts of your garment, I would cling to them with both hands 
until you gave me back my child. Have you no mercy when you see her pretty little shoe, Lord? Can you condemn a poor mother to fifteen years of torment? Kind virgin, gracious lady of heaven, they have taken away my child, Jesus. They have stolen her. They have devoured her flesh upon the heath. They drank her blood. They gnawed her bones. Gracious virgin, have pity on me. My daughter, I must have my daughter. What do I care if she is in paradise? I don't want an angel. I want my child. I am a lioness, roaring for my cub. Oh, I will writhe upon the ground. I will beat my forehead against the stones. And I will be forever damned. And I will curse you, Lord, if you keep my child from me. You see that my arms are all bitten and torn, Lord. Has the good God no compassion? Oh, give me nothing but salt and black bread. But give me back my daughter, and she will warm me like the sun. Alas, God, my Lord, I am but a vile sinner. But my daughter made me pious. I was full of religion from love of her. And I saw you through her smile as through an opening in the heavens. Oh, if I could only once, once more, just once more, put this shoe on her pretty little rosy foot, I would die, kind virgin, blessing you. Ah, twas fifteen years ago. She would be almost a woman now, unhappy child. What? Then it is indeed true I shall never see her again, not even in heaven, for I shall never go there. Oh, what misery to think that there is her shoe and that is all I have left. The unhappy woman had flung herself upon the shoe, for so many years her consolation and her despair, and she burst into heart-rending sobs as if it were the very day it happened. For to a mother who has lost her child, her loss is ever-present. Such grief as that never grows old. The garments of mourning may rust and wear out. The heart remains forever darkened. At this instant, the fresh, gay voices of a band of children were heard outside, passing the cell. Every time that a child met her eye or ear, the poor mother rushed into the blackest corner of her tomb, and seemed trying to bury her head in the stone walls that she might not hear or see them. But today, on the contrary, she sprang up hastily and listened eagerly. One of the little boys said, They are going to hang a gypsy girl today. With the sudden leap of that spider, which we saw rush upon a fly when her web quivered, she ran to her window, which looked, as the reader knows, upon the Place de Greve. A ladder was indeed erected close to the permanent gallows, and the hangman's assistant was arranging the chains rusted by the rain. 
a number of people stood about watching him. The laughing group of children had already vanished. The recluse looked about for some passer-by whom she might question. She noticed, close by her cell, a priest, who feigned to be reading the public breviary, but who was far less occupied with the letters latticed with iron than with the gibbet, towards which he cast repeated wild and gloomy glances. She recognized him as the archdeacon of Josas, a holy man. "'Father,' she asked, "'who is to be hanged yonder?' The priest stared at her and made no answer. She repeated her question. Then he said, "'I do not know.' "'The children said that it was a gypsy girl,' continued the recluse. "'I believe it is,' said the priest." Then Paquette La Chantefleury burst into a hyena-like laugh. "'Sister,' said the archdeacon, "'do you hate the gypsies so intensely?' "'Do I hate them?' cried the recluse. "'They are witches, child-stealers. "'They devoured my little girl, my child, my only child. "'I have no heart now. They ate it.' She was frightful to look upon. The priest gazed coldly at her. "'There is one whom I hate particularly, and whom I have cursed,' she added. "'She is young, about the age that my daughter would have been if her mother had not eaten my girl. Every time that young viper passes my cell, my blood boils.' "'Well then, sister, rejoice,' said the priest, as cold as the statue on a monument.' It is that same girl whose death you are about to witness. His head fell upon his breast, and he moved slowly away. The recluse wrung her hands with joy. I told her she would mount those steps. Thanks, Sir Priest, she cried. And she began to stride up and down behind her barred window, with disheveled hair and flaming eyes, striking her shoulder against the wall as she moved, with the savage air of a caged wolf which has long gone hungry and knows that feeding time is at hand.'"